Job and have seen the end of the Lord, and the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. And again there in verse 7, you can see it says, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord, while we await his return. Father, for the next few moments as we share the word of the Lord, we pray that you give us all ears to hear. Help every one of us to be ready when that day comes. We know, Lord, that even if you don't send your son for his bride this afternoon, any one of us could go home to be with you tonight. And I pray, God, that our hearts would be ready. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. In the Bible, the phrases, the day of the Lord, the last day, or in that day, or the time of the end, signify the last things. Whenever you hear people use that very big word, eschatology, that is in reference to what will take place in the end of the age. Now we understand from reading the scripture that when we talk about the period leading up to the coming of the Lord, there are four things that are referred to. Number one, the signs of the approach of that messianic era. Over and over again, the Apostle Paul tells us what to look for in the latter days. Jesus even told us <clears throat> in Matthew 24, in Mark 13, and in Luke 21, that there would be specific signs that would take place in the days prior to his return. But we also know that when we talk about the last times, we're referring to the actual event of his coming and what events will be inaugurated by his return. There will be a period of tribulation. There will be difficulties on this earth. But thirdly, there will be a judgment of the wicked. People that you think have escaped judgment are going to face the king. And even James says as much in verse 9 when he said the judge stands at the door. People forget that. We tend to believe that when we look at the news and we see the wickedness of our error and the difficulties taking place, that people are getting away with murder getting away with theft. I can promise you they'll stand before the king and give an account for the deeds that they've done. But also we need to know that the last days refers to the rewards of the righteous. All of the toil, all of the labors that the body of Christ has had to endure one day are going to be replaced by a special joy that comes from the presence of God. You that labor and think that your work goes unnoticed, you slave away every day in your occupation and you wonder if you'll ever be able to experience the fruits of your rewards in a manner that you think befits the efforts that you put into your projects, one day you're going to stand before God and you'll hear him say, well done. 
you that have spent your time laboring and working for others, one day you'll hear the Lord say, well done. In this particular epistle, James is giving the church some insight regarding what practical Christianity looks like. And he has told them everything about faith and about faith and works and how we are to live. He turns his attention in this chapter to the wealthy class of people. The first few verses deal with the rich people who hold their riches in unrighteousness and are very oppressive of different people. Uh, they have made a profit, but have not shared those profits with their hired workers. That's what James is condemning. Maybe you've experienced that. Maybe you've felt that before. Maybe you've thought that, that, that people have gone out of their way at your expense to make a super abundant amount of money, but yet had not rewarded you according to the profit that has come in. James is working on them, telling them that their riches are corrupted, their garments are moth-eaten. He even tells them that they have heaped up treasure together for the last days because they've stolen wages. He said they've lived in pleasure on this planet. I wonder about those people who lost so much money with that Bernie Madoff scandal. Wonder how many people took their lives, how many people have never recovered, how many older people who, when they went into the winter season of their life, were happy about entering into retirement age, only to discover the whole thing was a fraud. And here you have elderly people that looked for the day where they could sleep in and spend the rest of their time with their grandkids or great-grandkids or alone, but in the end, they found themselves back at work again, standing at Walmart as a greeter, shaking hands with people that were coming in, scanning wristbands. Maybe they found themselves back at a bank somewhere because they were unable to retire because everything they had was taken from them. And then people like that kind of individual are bold and brass in their deception. Think about it. When Elizabeth Holmes had everyone believing that her tests were practical and functional and first-rate, thousands of people across this nation invested in that Theranos thing, only to discover that it all was based on faulty science and lies. Millions of dollars taken from people. Multitudes of people robbed, popular individual, powerful, influential people who lost so much. I think Mr. Murdoch, Rupert Murdoch, my wife told me, invested over $100 million in that scam and lost that money. But these things have gone on for thousands of years. Wicked people do wicked things. Don't think for one second that up there on Capitol Hill that all of our senators and all of our congressmen are really interested in, uh, in us. They've got insight, private insight to all kinds of things. This is why so many of them can leave their hometowns, go up to Capitol Hill, and when they get there, they're only worth several thousands of dollars. But by the time they leave, they're millionaires. 
Somebody might say, I don't see a problem with that. If you don't see a problem with that, then you don't understand the depths of wickedness and the depravity of man that will take advantage of people. This is what James is talking about. He says, you folks have condemned and killed the righteous, and the righteous people haven't even resisted you. We just sit back and let it happen very often. We don't say anything. We turn the other cheek. Wickedness is on every hand, and they expect us to be sheep that are led to the slaughter while they do the slaughtering, and they honestly believe they'll get by with their wicked deeds. But I'm telling you, folks, the judge stands at the door. Between now and the coming of the Lord, there are things we are supposed to do. And James tells us in verse 7, the first thing we have to do is be patient. That's not an easy word. Be patient means to have the kind of attitude that causes you to endure. Because the adversary wants you to fall apart. He wants you to fall away from the faith. The devil wants you to see the iniquity of this world and then turn away from God and say, what kind of a God would allow this stuff to happen? The Bible says be patient. And patience is something we all could use. It's definitely a virtue, but the coming of the Lord is an actual event. It's a true event. It's definitely going to happen. Acts chapter 1 says Jesus was on the Mount of Olives with his disciples, and as he was giving them their final, final directions, Scripture says his feet began to levitate. The Bible says he was up into the sky, he was caught away into the clouds, and an angel said to the disciples, why are you gazing into the skies? The same Jesus that went up is coming back. Even the angels are telling us Jesus is coming back soon. And if we have supernatural information from Scripture and divine messengers from heaven that have acknowledged who Jesus is and that he's returning, we should be patient. Can you say amen? There's no hurry. There's no rush. All of us understand that we've got unsaved loved ones. So meanwhile, while we're awaiting the return of the Lord, we should be praying for our siblings, praying for our children. Praying for your grandchildren, saying, God, get a hold to them, shake them, stir them up, God. Help them to know that they should be on fire for you in these last days. Because once he comes, folks, when the judge appears, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be tough. But be patient unto the coming of the Lord. And then he says, by way of analogy, take a look at the husbandman. Now that English word there, husbandman, it is the word that generally covers the Greek and Latin word for the farmer, for the individual who is involved with the produce of the soil. And he says, take a look at that farmer who waits for the precious fruit of the earth. How does a farmer wait? How did farmers wait in ancient times? How should farmers wait today? What do they do? What are some of the things that they're doing as they're waiting for the appearance of the precious fruit? Well, number one, they prepare the soil. 
They spend a large amount of time making sure that that ground is prepared so that when seed is placed into it, that it will be able to germinate and produce the crop that is necessary. That means that a farmer has to take the time to survey his land, to look at places where the ground may be fallow, to see where it needs a little bit of moisture, to understand what will grow properly in this particular area and what wouldn't grow properly. This is what God is telling us by way of analogy. And then once that has been determined, then that specific seed is going to be placed in the ground. And what does that farmer do then? He's likely going to pray. If he knows God, he's going to pray because he knows that without the early and latter rains, there are not going to be a harvest anyhow. But after he has prayed and after he's done all that he knows to do to prepare for a crop, the only thing he can do now is wait. He cannot make that vegetation grow any faster. He can stand out there and shout at it, but it's not going to sprout up any faster. He has to learn to wait. That means the mental preparation and the attitude that's necessary for him to make it and endure to harvest is important. Somebody's got to be strong enough mentally to know that if the rains hadn't come like we want the rains to come, we still have to have faith to believe it's going to be a harvest. Have to have the attitude to understand that with a little bit of moisture coming down, that God can still provide the kind of harvest that's needed. Now, you know as well as I do, in dry circumstances, there are some things that are going to grow even if there isn't any moisture. You're going to have weeds and tares no matter what. And, of course, we all want an outpouring of the Holy Ghost in church, and we want to see the, the blessing of God fall like rain in a church. But, but even if God's not moving, you've still got weed, seed, attitudes, and everything else that develop. If the power of God is not in manifestation, you still have bitterness and anger and all of that that springs up because a congregation essentially is fertile ground and whatever kind of seed is planted. That's what's coming up. If God puts in that heart good seed from the Word, then the fruit of the Spirit will be manifested. But if that heart is permitted to become the habitation of the devil, then the devil will plant his thoughts, and pretty soon his attitudes will be manifested. Scripture says faith comes by hearing. What's the reverse? If you take faith away and take the Word of God away, there'll be fear, anxiety, depression. But if we fill our hearts with the word of God, we'll be bold and courageous as we await the return of the Lord. He's coming, folks. He's coming. So all of us should study that analogy of the farmer. He said, take a look. Behold the husbandman. He waits for the precious fruit of the earth. That means we all can learn something from the farmer. Now, I've been trying for years just to get some farmers to let me run a planter or a combine or something, but it just, it just hadn't worked out. I mean, you know, I like what Barry said one time. I was telling Garth or somebody, you ought to let me, you know, just drive one of them things. And Barry said, well, after all, it's, it's just money. 
You know, it's just, just money. And, and, and you know, it, so the best that I can do now is learn by way of analogy. And I do pay attention. I do listen to what people are saying when we're in conversation. If I'm talking with any one of you about your occupation, I'm paying attention to what you're telling me. I'm gleaning any little bit of information that I can. Even if I can't perform the task myself, I'm still listening to what you're saying. Because you can always learn something just by observation. Said the husbandman waited for the precious fruit of the earth. Why is it precious fruit? Because to the farmer that is going to be important to him. He esteems it of great value. And God looks in the earth and he sees people as a great investment. So important that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to come into this world to die for you. To die for me. You're an investment. He esteems you as a person of interest, as a person of value, as a person who is worth something, even if you don't have that same kind of attitude towards yourself. Because there are a lot of people, they don't think much of themselves. They don't think their life is worth much of anything. They don't care too much about themselves. But God wants you to roll back your shoulders because in his eyesight, you're precious to him. And he expects you to be part of that end time harvest that's going to be gathered up at the coming of the Lord. Because the scripture says the farmer has long patience for it. What's long patience? Here in America, you, in this area of the world, you plant in the spring, you wait until fall. Overseas in the Middle East, they plant in the fall, they harvest in the spring. It just depends on where you are. But once the seed has gone into the ground, it's at that point, according to verse 7, we've got to have the early rains. That's what we're praying about today. That's what Kale said that we need to pray about today. He said pray that we get some rain. It's close to springtime. We need the early rains. What are the early rains for? Preparation of the soil. The moistening of the earth. So that everybody will have what they need once they put that seed in the ground. If in the natural we have to be, be uh, patient about the early rain, how much more now? It was Peter that stood up on the day of Pentecost and said, This is what Joel prophesied about with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That early rain began in the church 2,000 years ago. And we've been doing everything we can now to help sow the seed, to help produce a harvest around the earth. And all of you that are in here that trust the Lord as your Savior, all of you that have had your sins washed in the blood of the Lamb, you are part of that great end-time gathering. You're part of that harvest. And so our Lord and Savior, the divine heavenly husbandman, is paying attention to his crop. He's watching. He's observing how we live, where we live, what we plant, what we reap. He's watching. But we have to be praying and expecting now the latter rain. And so for us out here, everybody knows that come July and August, we've got to have rains. Otherwise, the crops burn up. If you get good rains in the spring, that's great. That'll carry you along for a couple of months, even some weeks. But everybody knows for it to come to maturity, you've got to have the latter rains. 
This is exactly what we need in the church, the touch of God, the fresh oil of God, the blessing of God to bring the church to a place of maturity. We don't want to do church without the Holy Ghost. We don't want to do church without the presence of God. We've done church in the past in places without the presence of God. We don't want to have that kind of a crop. We want to have a people that love God, that, that, that press in to know God in a greater way. And if the husbandman has long patience for it, think about our Savior and how long he's been waiting to come for his bride. How long he's been waiting to thrust in the sickle and to bring in the wheat and the harvest at all. He's waited patiently, and we have to be willing to wait patiently also. How long did God wait on you to give your heart to him to become a Christian? You should be willing to wait that long on somebody in your family you're praying for. If you didn't get serious about God until you were 31, the love of God is shed abroad in your heart by the Holy Ghost. That means you have the capacity to love someone, to be long-suffering towards that person, and to be patient also for 31 years, just like God waited on you. Long patience. Long patience. But when the rain comes, things begin to happen immediately. I saw a picture one time where in Death Valley over in California how things sprung up after a brief rain. If you've ever seen a picture of that desert area out there, it gets upwards of 120, 125 degrees. Nothing grows out there in that place, folks. It's barren. It's desolate. But one day the rains came along for a couple of hours and dropped a half inch or two in that area. And then overnight you just saw things just spring up and it was like a beautiful garden until it died again. See, as a church, we need the early and the latter rain. We need the presence of God in our hearts and in our lives. And if there's anything that should distinguish us as a congregation from other churches, it should be the power of the Holy Ghost. It should be the presence of God. No doubt about it. So James says to all of you, if that farmer can be patient, in verse 8, you also be patient. Establish your hearts. Feed yourself so that you can last during the process of patience and enduring. I want you to make sure that your hearts are established by the grace of God and by faith in God because the coming of the Lord draws nigh. Now, people hear that and they say, well, look, we've been hearing for a long time he's coming. I know I've been hearing he's coming since I was a kid. But think what it was like just 10 years before Jesus was born. They had been hearing for thousands of years, the Messiah is coming. The message of the coming of the Lord is designed to keep your heart ready at any moment. And that preparation, the thinking that he could come, that has everything to do with the purity of your heart and holiness of lifestyle. Because you will believe that I don't want to be doing anything I wouldn't want to be doing if he were to come. I can give you another illustration. All of us, when mom and dad were, 
would leave maybe, go shopping or wherever they were going, go on a short trip. They'd say, look, we'll be gone for a couple of hours. While we're gone, stay out of trouble. Of course, when they make that statement, the wheels are already turning. See? See, wheels are already turning. So when they step out of the house and you watch the car go down the driveway, then that's when you know since the cat is away, the mice can now play. Now, if that didn't happen that way in your house, I can tell you sure did happen in ours that way. Yeah, and, and, and typically, I was the one that was in trouble. You know, my, my parents would tell my older brothers, they'd say, we're getting ready to go out to dinner or going to visit so-and-so. Do not bother Daryl. Leave him alone. Well, of course, leading up to that, I had already been the tattletale, and I had gotten them in all kinds of trouble, and they've told me on more than one occasion, we're going to remember this, and we'll get you back. And I tell them over and over again, oh, say whatever you want. I'm safe. Mom and dad are around here. And sure enough, when mom and dad said they were leaving, I'd be standing in that kitchen, and I'm looking right out that window as that car is going down the driveway, backing out. And the whole time, my heart is beating fast because in my peripheral, my older brothers are standing there and I can hear them yelling. Just as soon as that car gets out of the way, it's going to be you and us. And sure enough, I mean, they, they persecuted me. They gave me more trouble than I ever wanted. They take me to the second floor banister, throw pillows down at the foot of it, hang me over the banister, and, and then say, are you going to tell on us anymore? And I'd say, of course I'm not going to tell on you. Then they drop me anyway. I was persecuted. No wonder I'm the way that I am. I was persecuted. But, of course, when, when mom and dad came home, then they act like they hadn't done anything wrong, you know. We have a tendency to do things when people aren't around. But then there are some young people who have the attitude and temperament that when mom and dad is gone, they're actually trustworthy. And they're going to do what is right. No matter what anybody says. And, and those are the kind of examples that the Lord is looking for in the body of Christ. Be patient unto the coming of the Lord. He's definitely going to come. And he wants us to live right, right up to the last shot of the gun. We may not always want people to talk to us about our lifestyle. But people still need to talk to us about our lifestyle because the king is going to come. And I don't want you... And I don't want to be the person that misses the coming of the Lord. I don't want to be somebody that's left behind because I decided to turn away from God and go the opposite direction. So however much you feel like Daryl isn't just pastoring you but pestering you, I'm going to pester you as I pastor you so that you'll be ready when the king comes. Can you say amen? It's important, folks. God wants us to, to be an example. Now, my little sister, she was one of those, those little girls that just always had to do everything that mom and dad told her to do. And just, oh, my goodness, it was just obnoxious. And, and you know, those kind of people, they just they wear you out with, with 
you know, their, their, their lifestyle because they do what's right. I can remember some of you with, with your kids, if, if we ever had to babysit some of them, of course, I'd, you know, have them Lewis kids sometimes. And if mom and dad were gone away shopping or doing whatever they were doing, then I'd like to sugar them up a little bit, you know. You know, Chris wasn't really into all of that so much, but, but uh, Elijah and, and Ethan, they, they really were into the sugar. And so I, I'd like to give soda pops and, I mean, Doritos, and we'd sit around and, and have a good time. But, but you know, there's got to be a stick in the mud. And, and, and Elizabeth would always be the one saying, well, Mom and Dad said you can't have that. But the good thing about Elijah and Ethan, they'd look over at me and I'd say, look, we can have a good time here today, you see. God expects us to be a blessing in the days leading up to the coming of the Lord. Now, he doesn't want you to be like me and be the tempter. However, he does want you to understand that he is going to come and the coming of the Lord is closer today than it was yesterday. And it'll be closer tomorrow than it is today. And anytime somebody says to you, well, I just don't believe it. I've been hearing about it all of my life. So have the people that have been hearing they're going to die. They never thought they were going to die. They didn't have death on their mind. But one day they had a heart attack and they laid down and died. Death comes to everybody. But I'm talking about the coming of the Lord, his gathering of the church. I'm talking about harvest time. There is an appointed time where we will be gathered in and the Lord will be pleased to have us. Are you going to be part of that group? So verse 9, the scripture says, don't hold grudges against one another. A grudge is a form of unforgiveness. It's when you choose to not release a person from a particular offense that they've done to you. And when you hold a grudge, you typically maintain an attitude against them also. A grudge is difficult for everyone to see because they're not always visible. Some people can hide how they feel very well, even in the presence of the person they're holding a grudge against. But I want you to understand God sees everything in your heart. And he knows whether or not you have hostility or animosity towards someone in this tabernacle or towards someone in your family, towards someone in another location. And if you're the kind of person that holds a grudge, I can promise you that grudge will turn your heart cold. You'll become bitter, angry, irascible. You won't want to be around people. You won't want people around you because you're constantly angry. You won't want to be around people that are happy and joyful because there's nothing pleasant about you because you're a grudge bearer. And you say, well, I've got a right to hold my grudges. You don't know how I was treated. I don't. But I know how Jesus was treated. And I know on that cross, he said, Father, forgive them. So you can forgive. You have to choose to forgive just like you choose to love. Do you realize the largest Sunday school in this world is taught and led by a man named Bill Wilson back on the East Coast? More than 250,000 people 
in Sunday school worldwide, more than 30,000 or more each week or each Sunday over there in New York. But his testimony bears repeating. Here was a man that says when he was just a little boy, about four years of age, his mother, who was an alcoholic, walked him into the center of the city, stood him on a street corner, didn't say anything, but just stay right here, and she turned and walked away and never came back. Left him on a street corner. He said for three days and three nights, he sat there on that street corner watching thousands of cars pass him by. He said nobody stopped on that first day. Nobody stopped on that second day. Finally, on that third day, he said one car stopped. He said by then as a little boy, he was hungry. He was thirsty, his stomach was growling, and he was hurt because his mama hadn't come back to get him. But a man came up to him and said, son, why are you out here? What is wrong? And he said, well, my mom left me here, and I'm hungry. And that man took that little boy, got some food, put it in his belly, heard his story, and then sponsored him to go to a youth camp. For two weeks, he had a place to live in that youth camp, got three square meals a day, and from that youth camp had people that looked after him and took care of him. And by the time he became an adult, he started thinking about how many lost children there are in this area around here that need somebody to love them whose homes were destructive, whose homes were absolutely terrible. And in all the years that he's been out there working with those kids since 1980, he said three, 23 times he's seen people murdered. Multitudes of times he's been stabbed by parents who were angry with him because of how he was teaching their kids about Jesus and by robbers and thieves. One time he said he was trying to rescue some Nigerian girls and he even saw a girl beheaded because they were trying to rescue her. Here's a man whose life was touched because a Christian man came and showed him some love. Because of how his mother left him, he had every reason and right to be a person that held a grudge. He wasn't that kind of a man. The gospel came into his life, and he doesn't hold a grudge against his mom. He's not angry with God. He has reached thousands of young people. So what am I saying? Don't allow your past to cause you to think you're a victim. You're called, you're called by God to be a victor and more than a conqueror through Jesus Christ. Don't spend your time just meditating on how people hurt you. You're not the only person on planet Earth that's had a bad parent or been hurt or been bruised or been wounded. Millions of people have gone through that, and they've still gone on to walk with God. Grudge not. That's what he's saying. 
He said, you've got to understand, lest you be condemned also, if you're going to be a grudge bearer, the judge stands at the door. Jesus is not going to give license to you to live any way you want in bitterness and unforgiveness. And then he climbs up on the cross and forgives the people holding the mallet and the nails when they drove it in. If he could forgive, you can forgive. And if you tell me you won't forgive, that's totally different than saying you can't forgive. To say you can't forgive says you don't have the ability or the capacity. If you're a Christian, it's not a matter of ability. You have chosen not to. It's a matter of your will. Grudge not. But then he goes on to tell us finally here, take the prophets as an example. Look at how they were persecuted. They preached godliness. People didn't want to hear it. They walked with God even when they saw their fellow citizens turning and going wayward. They stayed true to God. And even when they stayed true, they had to endure the afflictions and sufferings that came from their own people. I'm telling you, folks, it's heartbreaking to me when I have to listen to people in the United States of America say terrible things about Christians. When Christianity is at the very foundation of this nation. See? It's troubling to me when I think about the fact that, that there are always people that say things like, well, I, I don't see how, how you can even love this country and love the red, white, and blue, the way that they treated slaves and all of that. And I tell people over and over again, the history of this world is about one group of people conquering another group of people, subjugating that group of people, the culture disappearing and another culture appearing. You can go anywhere in this world, read anything in a history book. That is exactly the way of man in sin. And the only thing I can tell him is I'm grateful that I wasn't raised when my grandparents were raised. And I'm grateful that I wasn't raised during the period where my parents were raised in the South. However, I know that seven years in the United States Marine Corps caused me to fall in love with the red, white, and blue, and there'll never be a time on this planet where anybody will ever hear me speak evil of this great nation. And all of the people that don't want to be here, all of the ones that want to complain about it, they can all take a boat to whatever country they want to go to. And I'll be happy to stay here. So from a scriptural vantage point, it bothers me to see Christians persecuted now when we're the ones that open up the door for a lot of the rebellion that we see. You go around the world, you go to the, the Middle East, oh no, folks, they're not going to have any dissent over there. You say anything publicly against Islam or Muhammad, they're liable to take a hand. They may behead you. You're certainly going to jail. That's in every Muslim country that I know of. If you publicly blaspheme the prophet Muhammad, you're in trouble. They'll close your church. They'll put your husband or your wife in jail. They may confiscate your daughter, force her to become a Muslim. Muslim men will be able to have their way with her. And from the legal standpoint, there's not a thing you can do about it. Because people in India... Bangladesh, 
Pakistan have tried to sue to get their Christian daughters back, and then the courts have told them that they have now converted to Islam, and now that they're part of the Muslim religion, you don't have a right to them anymore. Everybody that wants to tell us that we need to go ahead and, and, and fall in love with these other places, they need to go to those other places. Think about communism, China. Look at the persecution of Christians that are there. More Christians in jail than there are Christians free in certain countries. Think of what's taking place with Russia right now. They don't believe in any kind of political or public dissent. You open up your mouth, you go straight to jail. Dictatorship. I don't like what goes on here. I don't like a lot of the fraud that I see in our elections. It bothers me that politicians do the things that they do, but at least we know they're only going to rule for so long. But can you imagine having a king like Manasseh for 50 years? Can you imagine being in Russia with Putin as your leader for 20 years? Could you imagine growing up under Saddam Hussein, having had him for 40 years? And yet they, they, they crave the very thing that we have. And the thing that we have is the thing that we despise in this nation, which is freedom. And the people that despise it have turned their attention toward people like you and me that love God, that love liberty, that love Jesus, that love the Bible, and love our kids. And so here we are. And the Lord said, with all of this taking place, we've got to be patient. He's going to come, folks. I don't know when, but he's going to come. And when he comes, there will be people that have to give an account for how they have lived. And it's not going to be pretty. But I know the Lord, he's going to say to me, Well done, you good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. But there will be millions, if not billions of people that will hear that same voice say, Depart from me, you worker of iniquity, into everlasting fire. I'm serving God. I'm serving God. And, and, and these are some of the things I'm going to do as I await his return. I don't have time to be holding on to grudges. I don't want anything to keep me from his presence because on the other side of my last breath, I know I'm going to see him. And I do want to see him. Yeah. Let's stand. If you're here this morning and you are struggling with anything, struggling with grudges, struggling with unforgiveness, now's the time to make sure that you leave that burden at the foot of the cross and give that to God. If you see the persecution that I see that's going on with people that love Jesus Christ, we've got to be patient. God doesn't want you to walk around angry every day. Pray for patience. Pray for endurance because if you become a very angry uh, uh, just a, a person with a terrible attitude, you're not going to be the best witness for the king. And more than anything else, we're trying to make the harvest bigger and get more and more people into the kingdom. And we're never going to get them into the kingdom by being mean. 
We have to walk in love. The Bible says it covers a multitude of sins. We learn by observation. We pay attention to what's good. We pay attention to what's bad. We approve of what's good. We condemn what is bad. But those that are in sin, we still love them. And let them know God has a plan and purpose for their life. And God has a destiny for them even if they don't understand what that destiny is. So as I pray, search your heart this morning. And let God do the healing that's necessary inside you. No need to be angry at people that no longer are above ground. I've told you before, just a few yards west of us over there in that cemetery, there are a whole lot of folks buried. I don't know how many. I think one time Mr. Dare told me there were over 2,000 bodies in that cemetery, probably more, I would assume by now. But do you realize there are a whole lot of people still alive in this town and their anger and bitterness towards people that are dead still controls their habits and actions today? They're still so angry at their parents, they treat their kids and their grandkids in a terrible way. Yeah. Still so mad about how a spouse treated them during life that they are just angry towards everybody else. That is not God's plan for you and for me. Let's pray. Father, we know that your son is soon to come. We want to be ready. And Lord, we're searching our hearts right now because if there's anything in us, any attitude, any root of bitterness, we're praying that you dig it out right now, God. Reach down inside of us. We give it to you. And Lord, we want our attitude to be right as we're awaiting your return. You said that we should pay attention to that farmer that has that long patience for the precious fruit of the earth. And Lord, if you can exhibit patience, help us to exhibit endurance, God. Help us to live close to you, to walk with you, to be forgiving, God. Help us to look upon our neighbor and to pray for our neighbor in the midst of all of his or her weaknesses. And Father, I pray that in this church that your name would be glorified, that not a one of us would miss your coming, and that all of us would be part of that great end-time gathering, and we'll all be able to sit around that river up in glory and praise your name. Help our families, oh God, because you're wonderful. Let's just take a few moments and just worship him and praise him. Oh God, we thank you for your presence.